pick up that glass of Pinot Grigio, your drink of choice, and come have some fun with us on Turtle Time. We're going to do more than just drink and party on this podcast, Mom. I know, I know. Okay, if you don't know who I am, well, I'm Ramona Singer, and that's my daughter, Avery. And you probably know us best from the Real Housewives of New York. And now you'll get to know us even better on our podcast, Turtle Time. Let's make more iconic moments together every Wednesday. It's Turtle Time. Follow, rate, and review now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the Prosecutors. Today on The Prosecutors, we conclude our look at the Murdoch case. and welcome to this episode of The Prosecutors. I'm Brett, and I'm joined, as always, by my breathtaking and astounding co-host, Alice. What? We're back to you pronouncing my name right? <laughs> you know, Alice, this is the last episode. I felt like it's time It's time to get serious. It's time to come back, pronounce names correctly, which is not something I'm sure Alec Murdoch can do, because I don't know if even he knows how to pronounce his name, given that... On different occasions, he pronounces it in different ways. So that is a mystery we'll just never, we'll never know. I mean, we're finishing up our review of this, and it is sad to say that not only do we not know how his name is pronounced, I don't even have any theories for how his name is pronounced. So it is I, what it is. No, I think that's actually very fair because I know we've, there have been times where we've been as lighthearted as you can be talking about a very, very tragic double murder case, but bringing it all back down, you know, as much as a circus as the media tried to make this case out to be. And I'm not saying it's the media's fault, but like, I mean, this has just riveted the news cycle for years. And then the trial, of course, has, you know, gripped headlines across the world, really, for the last six weeks. I think it's very fitting that it all ended in a way that it should have, where justice was served, that due process was met. And I think a lot of it is because of a very metered judge who ran his courtroom with a lot of wisdom and a lot of patience and it came through at the end and obviously we're going to get to the end today and you'll know what happened ultimately in this case there's never going to be resolution even when we reach the end of this case because at the end of the day there are two people whose lives have been cut short and an entire community and an entire you know family dynasty that has just been shaken to its core. So I think it is very fitting that we return back to the proper pronunciation of my name as we end the Murdoch saga <laughs> that we've journeyed on for the past couple months together. And it is a saga. And look, this is our 10th episode in this. This will be the longest we've ever spent on any one case. And I think what's striking about it is despite 
all that time and and the depth that we've looked at this case and the depth we're going to look at these theories, this case exemplifies in so many ways the thing that we we have told all of you. You will never know everything. And in fact, there will be huge pieces of the puzzle you will never know. And juries, they are, they are tasked with determining whether or not someone did something. They can't read their mind and they can't travel back in time and neither can the prosecution. And you can never know for sure what was going through someone's mind. Alice mentioned the judge and he said something that I thought was really striking. At one point, he talked about the fact that he had in his long career, long distinguished career, seen a lot of people who were murderers, some of them who were self-confessed murderers, who admitted to what they did, and never had any of those people been able to tell him exactly what they were thinking and what was motivating them at the actual moment that they committed a murder. And so there's been a lot of people throughout this case who have had a lot of questions about exactly what happened and the order of things and the motive and what exactly was the motive. And those are mysteries that are left. Really, I don't even know if Alec Murdoch could explain to you fully, even if in a rare moment of honesty for him, why he did the things he did. We've talked about the evidence in this case. We've been pretty clear throughout what we think happened, but we did want to go ahead and talk about theories, including alternate theories about what might have happened as we wrap up our discussion of this case. And look, I think the place to start is with the theory that the defense sort of offered in opposition. As we've said before, the defense doesn't have to say anything. They don't have to put on a single witness. They don't have to offer a counter theory because the burden is entirely on the prosecution to prove what happened. But much like how the prosecution doesn't have to offer a motive, and yet cases like this almost require it, the defense, when faced with so much evidence and an obvious suspect in the husband, really does need to come up with something. And one of the things they offered was this is two shooters, two people who, for whatever reason, have come to this place to commit these murders. So, Alice, why don't you talk about that theory and how that theory works? Sure, absolutely. And, Brett, you know, it's fitting to start here because this is where Alec started the first time he talked to the police, right when law enforcement arrived at the crime scene. He mentioned the boat case. If you remember, he automatically kind of threw out there, there are people who are mad at Paul for the boat accident. So the defense position is that someone else committed this crime for some reason completely unrelated to Alec, you know, and maybe it was someone about the boat case. Maybe it was someone holding a grudge against Alec for some other reason and things like that. But what are the problems with this theory? First, there really is no evidence of anyone else's presence, not cell phone pings, not DNA evidence, not tire tracks, not footprints. And the defense blames shoddy police work at the beginning for why there's no evidence of someone else. But it's hard to believe that the police would destroy all of the evidence of one or even two attackers. And let me say something else about that. Remember, even if you believe that SLED is incompetent and doesn't know anything, they weren't the first people on the scene. And the first people on the scene were the local police who were friendly to Alec. He was one of the prosecutors that would have known him well. 
If they had seen evidence of another attacker, it would have been something that they would have noted. They had no reason to to throw Alec under the bus. And even in their reports, there's there's no real evidence of anyone else's presence. Even when the defense would try and point to maybe there's some tire tracks or maybe there's some footprints. I mean, even that was easily debunked. And it is hard to believe that anyone could come on that property and just leave no trace of themselves behind. And the second really difficult hurdle that the defense has to cross in order to sell this other person theory is the incredibly tight timeline, as we talked about in the last episode. Because of Murdoch's voice on the kennel video and when the murders likely happened based on the cell phone activity of both Paul and Maggie, Murdoch would have had to have been very close to the murders when they happened. He could not have been physically very far. Really, he had to have been essentially right there, maybe steps away on the golf cart. I don't even think he could have made it into the house if he had gotten into the golf cart. And he would have definitely still been on the property when they were killed. Why does he say nothing about hearing the shots? Why didn't he hear or see another vehicle when this is a property that is offset from the road? You wouldn't mistake, say, a car passing by on the rural country road outside as coming onto your property. I mean, it's true this property is big, but the kennels, as we've talked about multiple times, really aren't that far from the house. And how would these killers have known Maggie and Paul would be down by the kennels and that Alec would be gone? I mean, remember, Maggie was staying at the beach until that night when Alec asked her to come back for the sake of his sick father. And Paul had multiple places he was staying. He was jumping from house to house. This was not the only Murdoch property. They were only there that night because Alec asked them to be there that night. And you have to believe that because of that tight timeline, the killer would have had already have been down at the kennels before Maggie, Paul, and Alec arrived, that he found guns laid in wait, watching all three of them move, and somehow fortuitously, Alec was the one who left because apparently his target was Maggie and Paul. And as soon as he left, he jumped out, shot both of them alluded being heard or seen by Alec or leaving any tracks in that area, the dogs did not alert, did not bark, despite it being a stranger attacking their owners, the owners that they loved who had just been taking care of them, and somehow escapes, probably not on foot. This is a large property, many, many acres in the middle of the country. So walking along the side of the road would have alerted anyone passing by to something amiss. So he would have had to get into a car, drive off completely undetected. Those are just a lot of what ifs and hurdles to be able to mollify you in order to buy this theory. And I'm just listing some of the things, some of the problems with this theory. And I think it's always important. It's always important to think about the alternative theories and and what has to be true for an alternative theory to work out. That is evidence in of itself. If it feels, remember, it's reasonable doubt. And if the alternative theory, somebody else did it, which is what you'd have to have here, if it, if that is in of itself unreasonable, that is a that's a huge blow to the defense. Absolutely, and sure, coincidences may exist, right? So you have to believe that. 
all of these coincidences fell in place for someone else to have done it. So what a coincidence that they'd strike on the same day that Alec, even though Alec said on the stand during his testimony that it was just a normal day. It was not a normal day. It was precisely the day that his law firm, his law firm that his family founded and he was a partner in and his name, Murdoch, is part of the partner law firm name, discovered the financial improprieties he was hiding to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, over $700,000, but he knew it was closer to 10 million, if not more. So this was the beginning of the house of cards falling. So the coincidence is someone lying away on their property on the very night that he asks his wife and son to come back to the property that night, lying in wait to kill them when he is about to lose everything financially. What a coincidence that would be the same day his father went into the hospital for the last time. The same father who four days before Alec had said would co-sign a loan for him that he needed to backfill the $792,000 that was missing from his law firm's trust account. What a coincidence that the killers would come to Moselle to commit these murders without weapons of their own, but just so happen to find a family shotgun and a family AR-15 lying around when even Alec testified that he didn't see any firearms at the kennels. And what a coincidence that these murderers knew the property so well that they could enter without anyone seeing them and exit without anyone seeing them. Because remember, it's not just Paul, Maggie, and Alec on the property. They have a housekeeper. They have groundskeepers. I mean, this is a very large property with people who work on this land. So you have to evade all of these different people who know the property well. What a coincidence that this killer knew Maggie and Paul would be at the farm when even Maggie and Paul didn't know that they would be there until the day of the murders. Remember, Maggie had told her sister she had a bad feeling about what Alec was up to, and she didn't want to go to Moselle. And her sister urged her to go to Moselle nonetheless. And we saw her sister cry on the stand, feeling all the weight of the guilt for having talked her sister into going to her ultimate resting place. And what a coincidence that the murderers would know that Maggie and Paul were at the kennels in this you know, thousand acre property, that they would approach the kennels without the dogs or watchbirds noticing their approach. These are excitable dogs, as we heard in the kennel video. Their job is to point out things that alert them, like brush being moved because they're trained to look for animals that you hunt. Someone that they don't know, someone that they are not trained to listen to. They want to alert on those types of things, and they are always keen to do so. And in fact, that Alec didn't even see them when he was leaving the area just minutes before the killers struck. What a coincidence that Alec could leave the property around the same time the murders would have happened, and they would have also been escaping the scene, and they would have left the property essentially at the same time without seeing each other's vehicles. Alec would have left almost the exact same time as the murders and not seeing their car, their headlights, not hearing them, not seeing any indication of them, and that he somehow wouldn't swing by the kennels to say goodbye to Maggie and discover the murders just minutes after it happened. And tying this all together, 
Alec's dumb decision to lie about being at the kennels, and what a coincidence that his lie would be undone by a video on Paul's phone. But you have to believe all that happened. So that could have happened. Yeah, absolutely. It could have happened. I mean, truly, you need to believe every single one of those coincidences. If you're out there in the world saying, I don't know, I just don't know if the prosecution proved the case, given all the evidence the prosecution put on, that's what you'd have to believe happened in order for Alec Murdoch to be innocent. And, I mean, I'm sorry. That's just, that's a lot of coincidences. That is a a astronomical level of coincidences. And I've said before that Scott Peterson, if he was innocent, he'd be the unluckiest man alive. But I was wrong. <laughs> An innocent Alec Murdoch is the unluckiest man alive. If, if he's telling the truth and he didn't do this, then the number of things that came together for him to be falsely convicted is astronomical. It's almost a miracle in reverse for him that that would happen. And the killers of Maggie and Paul are the luckiest people in the world. And they should go buy a lottery ticket tomorrow because in order for them to get away with it, all those things had to happen as well. And, you know, look, that's a theory. It's a theory the defense offered. It is not a theory that I buy. And I would be surprised if there are many people out there when they really sit down and think about this and what would be necessary for someone else to have done this to conclude that Alec is innocent. And Brett, you know, it's it's not just that you have to buy the defense's theory. This is basically the only other alternative theory. It, it, you know, the, the theory as to who actually killed them and for what motive may be different. But because of where they were killed and the tight timeline that we know in irrefutable evidence based on the kennel video and based on the the metrics on the phones and the car this had to have happened. Again, the shooter and the motive could be different, but this is the scenario that you have to buy if Alec Murdoch did not murder Paul and Maggie. And that leaves sort of, I think, people's most popular alternate theory. The most popular alternate theory is not that Alec is innocent, is that he hired someone else to do it, that someone else came down and, and killed Maggie and Paul. And let me just go ahead and, and say one thing. If he did that, he's still guilty. <laughs> that is not a defense. <laughs> if the defense at the closing argument had stood up and said, ha ha, Alec didn't do it. He hired two people to do it. Ha ha, you have to acquit him. Of course, that's not the case. It still would be first degree murder, even if he hired someone else to do it. So, you know, there were people who thought he should be acquitted because he thought he hired somebody. And that's that's not the way the law works. So let's, let's put that There's, aside. That but would be also, like the largest loophole of all time to murder. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Like Alec Murdoch gets on the stand and says, sorry, Mr. Waters, you can't get me. I can tell you exactly who did it because I hired them. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's, that's not the way it's going to work. So, but did it happen? Nonetheless, did he hire somebody? There were two guns. So maybe there were two attackers. And the way this would go is basically Alec would know for all the reasons we've talked about and all the reasons we're going to continue to talk about that he needed to kill Paul and Maggie, that it was necessary for his legacy and the money and everything else, but he didn't want to do it himself. And so just like he did with the roadside shooting, he called in a favor from some of the low lives that he knew through his drug addiction and probably some of the other things he was doing that were illegal. And the signal would be him leaving the kennels. So him going down to the kennels wasn't because he had a sudden change of heart. It was he gets down there, the killers arrive, he sort of distracts everybody while the killers are getting in place. Then he turns around and leaves, and that's the sign. And 
it's almost like some of you have seen Justified. There is a scene in Justified in one of the later seasons where the main character, Raylan Givens, he meets with a, a mobster, basically. And it's a mobster who is trying to kill him and his family. And he's meeting with him basically to try and convince the guy to leave him alone. And they're in a they're in his limousine, and the mobster's like, "No, I'm I'm coming after you. I'm taking you out." And so he's like, "Okay." So he he gets out of the limousine and walks away. But this is actually a sign for some other mobsters that he knows that they can now go ahead and take care of the guy because the other mobsters wanted to kill the guy, and he was like, "Well, I'm law enforcement, so I'm not going to let that happen." But because the guy wouldn't back off, he let him do it. And him leaving the limo was the sign for them to come in. And they basically come in right behind him and shoot the limo up. That would be what you have here is Alex sort of driving away in his golf cart. And he does hear it. And he does see evidence. All the things we said so that seemed so hard to believe if it was someone else doing it, he actually sees and witnesses all that because he knows it's going to happen. He doesn't see the murders themselves because he's leaving but the murders are happening basically right behind him. And then he's getting up to the house, getting in the car and leaving to establish his alibi. There's a couple problems with this. Number one, you would think if you're going to do that, you would say the sign is not me leaving the kennels. The sign is me leaving the farm. Once I leave the farm, then you strike because then I have the perfect alibi. Then the timeline would be much later. You'd see cell phone activity much later. The killers could come in, kill Maggie and Paul while he's gone, and he wouldn't have to worry about some of the problems that we've seen up until this point. And in fact, you wouldn't have to lie about being at the kennels because his alibi would be so rock solid and he would be gone from the scene when this happened. And you have a few other problems. The same problems really you have with the intruders. There's no evidence of it. There's no evidence of anybody being there. There's no evidence of anyone on the farm. And you would think... If you were going to do that, you definitely would have those people bring their own weapons. You wouldn't want them to use weapons from the farm because that is something that's going to implicate you. Alex in a difficult position because if on that day he decided to kill his family, he has to use the weapons he already has. The best way to get caught is to go out and buy a gun that day that just so happens to match the weapon that's used or find some lowlife to buy a gun from because eventually that guy's going to testify against you. So... He basically has to use the guns that he has, but if he'd hired somebody, they could have used their own weapons, so it's a little weird that they would do it this way. So look, I don't think he hired anybody. I think if he'd hired somebody, we would know it by now, and just like the roadside shooting. The roadside shooting fell apart very quickly for him, and it didn't take long for the person he hired to say, he hired me to do this. So I get that this is sort of a sexy theory. It's a theory a lot of people want to believe because they don't want to believe he could have done this himself. But it falls apart, I think, really on the barest inspection. And remember, especially if he hired someone, we've talked about this a lot, hiring someone to be a hitman costs money or drugs, something. It costs basically goods that can be traced. And what happened after him hiring someone to shoot him on the roadside? Financial ruin was coming, right? There was the Mallory Beach civil lawsuit that implicated a lot of money. There was all of the missing funds from his law firm. There was him hiring, you know, cousin Eddie to shoot him. And because of that, all of his financial records were being investigated with a fine tooth comb. So if he had, in fact, transferred a lot of money to a hitman, we would absolutely know that. And 
look, this man probably does have a lot of offshore accounts that are not traceable. I, I bet you there are a lot of assets we don't yet know about. But just remember that there was a very extensive financial investigation that resulted in nearly 100 financial charges after this, and yet there was no indication that he had hired anyone to do the killing for him. And so that leads us to basically the only other theory that exists, which is that Alec did it. He did it for all the reasons the prosecution put forward. And we've already gone through a lot of the timeline. And I think mostly what you guys want to hear about is why would he do this? And no one truly can tell you. I don't even think Alec can tell you, just as Brett mentioned earlier that the judge noted. And I think he has certain turns of phrases throughout the trial when he testified that show that he probably doesn't even know it. He qualifies a lot of how he talks about not hurting Maggie and Paul, that he would never intentionally hurt them, that it was not that was not something that he could do, but he did. So if Alec were the one to kill him, let's look at everything surrounding that day. So his downfall had been coming for quite some time, but he'd been able to hold it at bay for a long time. Whether he was on opiates or not, I think that particular day, you can't attribute it to some sort of heroin opioid rage because he is driving, he's talking. We hear him talking minutes before the murder. We have him speaking at length on video to law enforcement that night. He is at least in control of his faculties where he can talk and he is not in some delusional state, some altered mental state from drugs. So even if he took drugs that day, I don't think that this is because he was on some high and had no idea it was going and was delusional and was hallucinating. But instead, what happened that day? He goes to work and he is confronted by his law firm partners that a lot of money is missing and it is pointy to him and he needs to figure it out. He needs to somehow pay back $792,000, money he does not have readily accessible, money that his father will co-sign with him as he had on many other previous loans to get him out of this particular pickle. That same day, his dad, who has gotten him out of many, many financial straits and many other situations of misdeeds, right, whether it be the boat case at the hospital or some other thing, his father had been his fixer for a long time. His father is admitted to the hospital and he is expected to die very imminently. This is all spiraling. He is facing not only the criminal charges in the boat case, he himself is not, but Paul is. And Paul has a hearing coming up. It's been delayed because of COVID. But Paul is about to have to face the music criminally. Okay, so what? Maybe they can beat that charge. But even more worrisome for him is that the Mallory Beach family has brought a civil lawsuit against him. And they are wanting to look at all his financial records because he is the one who owns the boat. And he is the one who lent the boat to his son, knowing his son drinks and knowing his son drives in the way that he does. People were about to start looking deeper into the Murdoch family and start looking more closely at his books, books that he knew would not be able to live up to muster. That same day, he has to do something. Everything is crumbling. And it's not just about money. It's not just about $792,000. It's not about $10 million. It's not about $50,000 a week for opioids. This is not what it's about. Think back to our very first episode. What is this about? This is a century-long family dynasty 
He is one of many, many Murdochs who have run this town, whose very name is synonymous with this town, who have the power, who have the envy of everyone around them. Everyone wants to be a Murdoch. They have land. They have prestige. They have power. He has law enforcement badges. He has blue lights in his car. He is literally a god in the low country. That is all about to vanish before his very eyes. Not just Alec Murdoch's identity, but the entire dynasty of the Murdoch family is about to crumble because of him. It was able to stay alive for generation after generation after generation, but it was about to die with him. And he was going to have to face the music of being the downfall of this dynasty. This is all crumbling around him as he needs to make a decision fast as to what to do. Again, I can't tell you what was in his head, but the circumstances of that day were not coincidental. It is not coincidental that the day that his entire family dynasty is beginning to crumble, the day that his the person who's been able to bail him out time and time again is about to die, is the day that these murders, the unthinkable murders of his wife and son occur on his property with his guns. And look, I don't know how you can listen to Alice, and I don't know how you could listen to the closing arguments by the prosecution and not believe that's what happened. I, I am still sort of surprised that there are people who don't buy this as the, as the reason for this. And, you know, there's no good reason to kill your, your wife and your kids, but I guess it kind of surprises me that people think, you know, if he'd been having an affair with some woman he met six months ago, okay, well, that makes sense. But the collapse of his entire, everything, his entire being is under threat, is, is about to be destroyed when he does this. And what could be more, I mean, what could be more devastating, truly, right? We see, unfortunately, in our line of work, we see people commit murders for much less. We see people commit murders for $20 in order to get their next hit on the street. We see people who fly into a rage over a football game and shoot somebody else in the face and kill them. We see mothers, you know, in postpartum depression, smother their own children. We see husbands, you know, kill their wives. When your very, very identity and not just your identity, but everything that, you know, this he they're not just the Murdoch's, right? They are the low country. When all of that is at risk, I mean, I can't actually think of anything more weighty than that being on your shoulders, especially when you see the reasons that other people commit murders. And so I know a lot of people keep, you know, stating, I just can't believe someone like him would do this. And I'm thinking this is exactly what would push a man to the very edge to do something like this. Yeah, I I just, I don't know. And to me, it feels, it just feels so obvious. When you look at the timeline and you look at everything that's happening, on that day, it just seems so obvious that that's what he was doing. I'm going to offer sort of an alternative theory and then talk a little bit more about this stuff, but there may be some variation on what Alice is saying that is true, that is reality. Number one, we're never going to know. Unless Alec Murdoch one day says, I want to clear my conscience and tell you exactly what happened, and he's honest and believable, we're never going to know exactly what happened or why it happened. It's kind of like Chris Watts. Chris Watts has told a dozen different stories about that night. He's somebody who's admitted what he did. 
it's still unclear exactly what happened and in what order and what triggered it and everything else. And I know it drives people crazy and I get, and I am so happy that so many people cannot imagine ever doing anything like this and can't believe that any motive would justify this. No motive would justify it, but that there's no motive you hear that's believable because you would never do something like this. And I think that's important to remember. You listening out there would never do something like this, and so it's hard for you to imagine the motive. But I don't know how you can listen to what Alice just said and disagree that that's what happened. But nevertheless, I'm going to offer an alternative, (laughs) which is it's not really an alternative, but it's a little bit of an alternative to the narrative that you heard. And it's one that I believed for a long time, but I'm not sure I believe it anymore. And that's that Paul was basically an accident, that Alec did not intend to kill Paul. So hear me out on this. There's something interesting, I thought, from the conversation with the ballistics expert. So Agent Greer, who was the ballistics expert, he he could neither rule in or rule out Buster's firearm as the murder weapon, which didn't seem that important to most people or to the prosecution because most people think, and the prosecution theory was, that the AR-15 that was used in the murder was Paul's missing rifle, not Buster's. That basically the AR-15 was used and at some point Alec got rid of it and it wasn't just lost. However, there was something interesting about Buster's rifle. Greer said that when he was testing it, he noticed that after he fired the weapon, it did not reload as it should, given that it's semi-automatic. So those of you who know nothing about guns, a semi-automatic weapon means Every time you pull the trigger, it will fire. And the reason for that is once you fire the weapon, the explosion that happens when the weapon is fired reloads the gun. So another bullet is pulled from the magazine into the chamber and is now ready to be fired. So as many times as you can, as fast as you can pull the trigger, the gun will fire. An automatic, you just hold the trigger down and it fires continuously. Well, Buster's rifle didn't work that way. Something had happened to it that you had to manually load it each time with a new round. So you pull the trigger, bullet is fired, no bullet goes in the chamber. Probably, given that it's an AR, essentially there is a, it's kind of a lever, it's hard to describe. It's not, it's not, the, it's not what you generally think of when you think of how you would load a gun. It's not like a shotgun where you, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. But those of you who've seen a shotgun loaded, it's not like that. There's a kind of a lever on the back and you pull that and it pulls a bullet up. So essentially, he's having to do that every time. So this AR is a one-shot weapon. Now, the presumption has always been that Paul was killed first, and then Maggie. And you heard this with this powerful closing by Creighton Waters that Maggie, if you look at the scene, you know she's running to her baby. Paul has been shot, and she's running to him when she was targeted. And the presumption has been that Paul, who was killed with a shotgun, then whoever killed him with a shotgun picked up the AR and used it to kill Maggie, most likely in an effort to make it look like there were two killers. So this is part of Murdoch's sort of alibis. There are two killers, two guns, two killers. Okay, but imagine for a second that that's not true. Remember in Murdoch's initial statement to the police, and in fact, in his testimony from the stand, he said something that I thought was interesting. I've said before, I always think there's truth in things people say, even when they're lying. And he has always said that Maggie kind of went down to the kennels by herself. And at various times, he didn't know where Paul was. In his initial statement, he said Paul had left. In his statement from the stand, he said Paul had gone off, but he didn't know exactly where he was. 
what if that part was true? What if he believed that Paul had left after filming the video? Remember, why was he filming the video in the first place? Because he couldn't get an internet connection. He couldn't get a good he couldn't get good service down there. So imagine he films the dog, he's got the video, but he still can't send it to his friend because he's not getting good service. So what if he says something like, Hey guys, I'm heading into town, I'll see y'all later, something like that, and walks off sort of into the darkness, maybe fires up a you know, his his golf cart. I mean, who knows? And at this point, Murdoch sort of thinks he leaves. And he waits a couple minutes because he thinks he's leaving, wants him to get gone because it actually kind of helps with his alibi. He, you know, he saw Paul. They were down there. No big deal. Then just like Paul, Murdoch leaves. Maggie's down there by herself and someone strikes and kills her. So imagine this happened. Paul leaves. Murdoch was always intending to kill Maggie with the AR-15. He picks up the gun and he shoots Maggie. But at some point, the gun stops working the way he thinks it should. It's not reloading automatically anymore. And he may even think it's not working at all. Maybe it's the final shot. He fires that final shot and the gun breaks, essentially. For reasons we don't know, Paul comes back. Maybe he's like, ah, I should feed the dogs. Remember, he's found in the feed room. He might not even think anything of hearing gunshots because you hear gunshots all the time. Paul comes back and stumbles upon this. And at this point, Alec is in a position where he has to act. He doesn't want to kill Paul, but he's killing Maggie because of all the reasons we've talked about. He needs access He needs access to finances. He can't keep moving money without her knowing about it. She already knows about the drug use. And so he just has to act. He, he then picks up a shotgun and uses it to kill Paul. And if you remember... What does he say to the police when he interviews with the police? He tells them he thinks Maggie was shot first. Why would he say that? Why would that be something that comes up? There are several times that Alex says things to the police that people now basically take as the truth. For instance, when he says, I believe to the sister, that whoever did this had been planning it for a long time. That's something most people think, yeah, that's probably true. You were planning it for a long time. When he asks the police or when he says to the police that he thinks Maggie was shot first, why would he say that? Maybe it's because it's true. Maybe she was shot first. The other thing that's interesting, and the thing that initially made me think this was possible, Paul was killed with duck shot. This may not mean much to most of you, but if you set it to kill someone, duck shot is not what you'd use. You'd use buckshot. Duck shot, and this is another reason that there's no way that this was some random killers, because you just wouldn't use duck shot to kill somebody. But Duckshot, we're going to have a chart that you can see. If you're watching this on the video, you'll see it now. If you're, if you're not, go to our website and you'll see it. Basically, it shows you the different sizes of shot. And Duckshot is a four on this chart that we're looking at. It has a diameter of 0.13 inches. The smallest Buckshot is 0.24 inches. For those of you who are overseas, that's 3.3 millimeters for Duckshot and 6.1 millimeters for the smallest buckshot. Law enforcement uses the double-aught buckshot. That is a 8.38 millimeter round or 0.33 inches. If you get shot with buckshot, it's bad. <laughs> like, if you get shot with buckshot, you're probably not going to live. You use duck shot on things like birds because you don't want to just blow them out of the sky. I mean, you've all seen sort of these stuffed 
ducks that people have hanging on the side of their wall. If you shot the duck with buckshot, there wouldn't be anything left to hang on the side of the wall. So you have a much smaller round, much less power, much less damaging. Those of you who remember Dick Cheney, when he shot one of his friends while they were hunting, he shot him with birdshot, which is very similar to duckshot. Duckshot is usually steel because you're shooting over water. And if you shoot them with lead, the lead goes into the water. Bad for the water for all sorts of reasons. So you tend to use steel, use lead for other animals, but very similar shots. Dick Cheney shoots his friend in the head, doesn't kill him. He's, you know, out of the hospital relatively quickly. You just don't use that kind of weapon to kill someone. You just don't do it. <laughs> and I know this is weird for some of y'all to think about. Like, how is it possible you could get shot with something and it not be a big deal? But typically, birdshot, it's just, it's so, I mean, once again, you use it to kill a bird, not to destroy it. Guys, if you're like me, you probably tried to learn a second language in high school or college, and it probably wasn't exactly the high point in your career. You know, for me, I spent three years trying to learn Spanish, and at this point, I can say hola, and that's about it. But now, thanks to Babbel, I have an opportunity to actually learn a language in an addictively fun and easy way. And it's the learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. And there are a lot of happy people out there right now conversing in languages other than their own. There are so many situations in which this can be valuable, whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or just have some free time. Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. I'm giving it another shot with Spanish and I can tell you, just in the first week, I already feel more comfortable with the language than I ever did in high school. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. They get it. You don't have all the time in the world. In other language learning apps, they use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, and we are talking a lot of different options. 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent, which you all know I need all the help I can get. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. There are games, podcasts, videos, stories, even live classes, and it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So what are you waiting for? It is time to start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription. 55% off when you go to babbel.com slash prosecute. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash prosecute for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Angie's list is now Angie, and they've made it easier than ever to get all your home projects done right. I've been really busy, and I actually had my refrigerator broke, but thankfully I was able to look on Angie to have an appliance repair person come and fix my refrigerator. It was so easy, so amazing, and all I had to do was click on a couple links, and they got me the best prices for an appliance repairman. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Just bring them to your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you see ratings and reviews, compare quotes from local pros and connect instantly, which means you can cross things off your to-do list in just a few taps. 
Because whether it's routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie is here to make it easy. So get your next project done with the help of a pro from Angie. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You all know that I love learning new things, and I'm a real believer that learning is a lifelong endeavor. And that's one reason I am so excited to have Masterclass sponsoring this show. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. With over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. And the great thing about Masterclass is there are so many different ways to learn. They have cinema quality classes that give you unparalleled access to renowned instructors. You can explore lessons in any order you'd like, across your phone, tablet, Apple TV, computer, and on the go with audio mode. And if you don't have a whole lot of time, you don't need it to learn great things with Masterclass. Lessons of approximately 10 to 15 minutes in length fit easily into your everyday schedule and there are so many different things that you can learn and so many different ways you can learn it i'll give you an example if you take a cooking class with masterclass they come with beautiful downloadable guides that are at the level of a high-end cookbook i don't know what you guys are waiting for you need to join masterclass today i highly recommend you check it out get unlimited access to every class and as a prosecutor's listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash prosecute now. That's masterclass.com slash prosecute for 15% off masterclass. And go and go look at the sizes of these and you'll really see the massive difference between the duck shot and the buck shot, right? You can see how these, I mean, it can do certainly, can certainly do damage, but if you're trying to kill someone, this is not what you go for, not these small little pellets. Think about how small a bird is compared to a human and why you can't shoot them with a much larger shot because, like you said, it would be completely obliterated. I've, I've seen it happen before, actually. On Growing up in Texas, you see a lot of things and someone mis- misloaded and, and shot a, a duck, unfortunately, not with duck shot, and it was not pretty. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's nothing left if you do that, and... A lot of you, some of you may have shotguns used for home defense. I have a shotgun that's sort of my home defense weapon of choice. And a lot of times, and this is the way I do it, you know, my shotgun holds four shots. There are three of them that are buckshot, but the first one is birdshot. And the general idea is, number one, if someone breaks into your home, when they hear you load a shell into a shotgun, that classic sound of a shotgun being loaded, that should be enough to make them go. If it's not, you have a birdshot round in there, which you can shoot at them that probably won't kill them, but will scare them off, and it doesn't penetrate through the walls. So one thing you always have to worry about when you're shooting is you don't want something behind what you're shooting at to be hit. So your first shot is birdshot. Hopefully that takes care of the problem. If it doesn't, you got three buckshot rounds left if, if it's that bad that they're still coming at you. And at that point, just, you know, all the cards are on the table right? Well, here, what's interesting about this, this is reversed of that. So the initial shot that Paul is hit with is double-lot buckshot, which is what I said was the police round, 0.33 inches, 8.38 millimeters. And that's the first shot from the shotgun that he shot with. And he shot in the chest. This should have killed him instantly. There's no way he should have survived this. 
I think the prosecution described it as a one in a million shot that he did. But by some miracle, he does. It wouldn't have killed him. It didn't hit anything in his body that was critical, that was vital. No vital organs. And basically, I keep saying 8.38 millimeters and 0.33 inches. That's each shot. And in buckshot, there's about eight of those that are coming out of that shotgun at close range, hitting you. There's no way you should survive that. But according to the ME, his biggest danger was probably infection. It wasn't the shot. I don't know how that happened, but the initial shot is that. And then the second shot is duck shot. And it does kill Paul, but only because of the sort of wacky angle at which it hits him. It essentially goes up into his the bottom of his throat and then into his brain. So honestly, if he'd have been shot with duck shot straight on, it might have been similar to the buckshot. He might have survived that too, but he didn't. And that goes to show you, duck shot can kill you, but it's not the round you would choose if you intended to kill someone. If you were setting out to kill someone, you would load the shotgun with buckshot. And this kind of goes to one of the things that the defense talked about, is that the two guns never really made sense. Maybe Alec is smart enough to make it look like two shooters. I think, honestly, as I'm going to get to, in the end of the day, is probably what it was. Certainly possible, but it's probably not the most likely thing. And possibly that's because he never intended to use two guns and he never intended to kill two people. Killing Maggie was necessary. It would have allowed him to move money, to liquidate property, and to do it all without any interference from her. It is a much better motive than simply killing them both to evoke sympathy. And he could have used that money to help protect Paul in the boat case. By having Paul on the farm, it gives Alec an even better alibi. Paul is there. He sees him. Everything's fine. Then he leaves. Alec leaves soon after. And then she's killed. Both men are just lucky. But that's not how things went down. So you have Alec panicking. He grabs a nearby weapon, one that for whatever reason is loaded with a combination of ammunition, which you almost never do. You, unless, like I said, it's a defense-type situation, you have one kind of shot in your shotgun because it's used for a specific purpose. And buckshot and duckshot really only go together in the situation I was describing, but you wouldn't load it that way. You don't shoot someone first with buckshot and then go to duckshot. That's just not how you would do it. So that's sort of my alternative theory about what might have happened. And I argued this strenuously to Alice at some point. About, <laughs> Look, you when you argued how... <laughs> this, it was still the prosecution's case and it was early in the trial. And I thought I thought it was incredibly appealing because it is so difficult to understand why he would kill Paul. Right. This a lot of you have said, I still can't get around him killing his own flesh and blood, his own son, maybe his wife. Maybe they were on the outs. You know, maybe Maggie was trying to seek a divorce. You've heard all of the the rumors or allegations. Right. She was living down by the beach. They weren't even living together. She was confronting him about the the drug problems and the properties were in her name and she was refusing to turn them over to be sold in order to pay off all of these financial misdeeds. So maybe you can imagine why he would kill Maggie, the motive. But a lot of you, including me, can barely wrap my head around a father killing their own son and a young son, right? I mean, he's in his 20s. This is not like some older grown man that they've gone their separate ways. He still lived at home and, and they were together earlier that day. You saw the video of them driving around, having fun on their property together. How could this same man shooting the breeze with his son, 
you know, hours before, really minutes before in the kennel video, do something so just maniacal as to stick a gun underneath his own son's chin when his son is not yet dead and blow his brains out the back of his head. It is hard to believe. And that's why when you argued this to me, Brett, I was like, yeah, I much like a world in which he didn't want to kill Paul, but it was kind of like it, it just happened in the, the heat of the moment. And he was found out, you know, in the midst of killing Maggie and, and Paul was was collateral damage. But as the trial it's unfolded. It's a great theory. It's a, it is. It's a great theory. It's a you should write books for a living or something, yeah, Brett. There you go. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and if I wrote a book with this theory, it would be just as true as in reality, which is not at all. The theory is wrong. And I have <laughs> Well, tell I us about that. that. What made you change your and, mind then? And, you know, I mean, I hope this, to those of y'all who think that we don't change our minds as we, as we see the <laughs> That's evidence. That's not true at all. <laughs> you know, at, at the beginning of the trial and really going into the trial, the growing theory was kind of that Paul was the intended victim and Maggie was kind of collateral. Not that she wasn't intended, but the point was to kill Paul and you had to kill Maggie because she was down there and everything else. But, and I was sort of inverting that. Well, what if it's the opposite? What if Maggie is the intended victim and Paul is not only not intended, but is kind of accidental? But once you watch the trial, if you watch the trial, the prosecution did such a good job of laying out the evidence. And, and I've changed my mind on that. I now think that Alec had to kill them both. He had to kill them both for interrelated reasons. Some of the reasons Alice has already talked about. In fact, he, he did kill them both. And as Alice explained, everything was collapsing around him because of the boat case. All of this goes back to Mallory Beach's death. Her death was the trigger for all of this. And the fact that it happened right before COVID, as we talked about, the financial situation, this was a Ponzi scheme, as the prosecution said, that was collapsing. It was collapsing because of a lot of different things. And the boat case would have ultimately exposed all the financial misdealings that Alec had been involved in. He had to end it. The law firm was already looking at him. He had to end it. Mark Tinsley was going to scour his financial records. There was so much argument over whether or not this next event was the event where he was going to get the documents. And I would just say, go back and watch Mark Tinsley's first testimony. His second testimony is very sort of cabined by the rules of evidence and a lot of other things. It's much more sort of official and stayed. It's still good, but it's not as in-depth. His first testimony outside the presence of the jury, when really the judge gets to hear everything and the, the parties don't really object because most objections are really about the jury and preventing them from being biased. And this was very open. And Mark Tinsley just lays it out for you that he was putting immense pressure on Alec to show his cards on his finances. And he didn't really care about the next hearing or this hearing or that hearing. It wasn't about that. It was about the totality of what he was doing, putting him in a position where if he didn't settle, it was going to be rough for him because he was going to find every dime he had and he was going to take it. The problem for Alec was he couldn't settle. He didn't have any money. He was in a position where he had all of these plates that are spinning that he's trying to keep up. And now Mark Tinsley shown up and said, Hey, I need $10 million. And he didn't have that. And this was going to expose all of that. He had to end it. And there are people who dispute this. You hear people just say, well, I don't, I don't think that's true. 
Tinsley testified on the record, subject to perjury, that that's exactly what was going to happen. And I think Tinsley is telling the truth. And not only is Tinsley telling the truth, Alec would have known all of that because Alec is Tinsley in a different life. He understands how these things work. This is what he did for a living. This is how he made all the money that he both earned and stole is because he understood this. And he would have known that if Paul dies, that's going to end the case for him. Even if the case continues, it's not really going to matter. Not for him. The sympathy is there. There's no point. You can't get blood out of a turnip or whatever. And they just weren't going to be able to pursue him. So this also goes to something that was very convincing to a lot of people. And that was Alex's demeanor throughout trial. You know, he's weeping. He's... He, he seems like he's devastated. And there were some talking heads on television who really bought into that and thought, man, I just don't know. He looks so upset. I think he was upset. <laughs> yeah. I think he had, he had some legitimate remorse. This was something he felt like he had to do, not what he wanted to do. And sometimes, you know, I think in his mind, when things are hard, sacrifices have to be made. And this was a sacrifice. And that's a great point, Brett. You know, a lot of people said, I don't buy a motive where he was going to buy himself time if his wife and son were murdered, that it would just put things aside. It's not that he was buying himself time to distract people. It was going to end the financial inquiry into all of his misdeeds. That, I mean, there's a possibility it would have kept going in a little bit, but it really wouldn't have. The hook to get all these financial records was the boat case. And you have no boat case if Paul is not convicted and there is no record of him being on the hook liability-wise for it. And so it's not a delay tactic. It was a desperate attempt to cut off the financial inquiry into his life. And I do think that's why he's so upset, because this was the only choice he felt he had, which, by the way, if that is a motive, it's still evil. That is completely evil to decide that the end of the life of other people that can save your butt after you have cheated your way through decades of people's money is the only way to save you. So I've heard some people who are like, well, what if the motive was to protect his family from financial ruin? That in and of itself is an evil motive. And it wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just Paul. Maggie wasn't collateral damage. Maggie had to die too. Maggie also had to be sacrificed to make this work. Alex's father was dying and he would have known that on June 7th. The defense tried to push back on this. There are some texts that are like, if it goes this way, maybe it'll be fine. But if you look at Maggie's text and you look at what Maggie said to her sister and to the housekeeper, they knew his father was, was really on death's doorstep. And this was a real problem for Alec because his father had backed him up so many times. And as we know from that email, four days, four days before this, Alec needed money. He needed about $600,000. It was a loan he wanted to take out on Moselle. He had emailed this to his buddy at Palmetto State Bank, the one who is now in federal prison for some of this financial misdeeds. And he had said in that email, my father will co-sign on any loan you need him to co-sign on. And this was true. His father had been doing that for a long time. He had been keeping him afloat. And this is where that Ponzi scheme comes in. The prosecution uses this in the closing. They talk about a Ponzi scheme. They don't go into it a lot, but I actually think it was brilliant because Ponzi schemes are everything's fine until it's not. As long as the money's coming in and you're backfilling your oldest debts and your oldest thefts, 
with new stealing, you're fine. But as soon as that money gets cut off, that's when everything collapses. And that's exactly what this was. Alec was stealing from Peter to pay Paul. His thefts today were used to keep both his lifestyle afloat, maybe buy some drugs, and to pay off his thefts from yesterday. But on June 7th, he was in a total bind. He needed to come up with $792,000. In fact, he told members of the law firm that he had the money and it was there and he just needed to, it was a mistake. It is a mistake, he's going to fix it, right? But the reality was the money wasn't there. And since his father could no longer co-sign for him, it wasn't going to be there and he wasn't going to get paid by his law firm until the end of the year. Remember, he's making $150,000 a year as his salary, but the real money comes at the end of the year. This is June. He's got a long way to go till the end of the year. Now, Alex said, hey, that's fine. He testified about this. He said, I had plenty of equity in Moselle and Edisto. And that's true. There was plenty of equity in Moselle and Edisto. But unfortunately, both of them were in Maggie's name. At various points, he had moved property into Maggie's name, most likely to protect it should anything ever happen to him. But it was fine. It didn't matter that it was in her name because she would sign anything he asked her to sign. Yeah, she had to sign off on any loans, but she would do that. No big deal. She would sign off on it. But something had changed. In May of that year, Maggie had found those pills. And what we know from testimony is she spent the rest of the day Googling what they were. And you can see her searches. And it's like, you know, small, white, round pill with this stamped on it. And what she's finding out is these are all oxy of one variety or another. And you have to wonder, maybe before this, she had been willing to sign off on loans against the property. But maybe after this, she wasn't. Especially when we know she was really concerned about the impact of the boat case and what effect it would have on their wealth. And she had said this to friends. She was really worried about that. So knowing that Alec has a drug problem and he's wasting a bunch of money on drugs and knowing they need to have some money ready in case the boat case goes badly for them, which it probably will, not hard to imagine that she says to him, no, I'm not going to sign off on anything else. The next deadline on the boat case is June 10th, three days away from then. And this is when Alec would likely be called upon to turn over at least some information on his finances and it would just be the beginning. And he could not afford to do that. He needed time and he needed money. And he needed the boat case to go away. So I think in his mind, he had to kill Paul. And I think he saw killing Paul and Maggie, who he also had to kill in order to get control over everything else, as almost an act of mercy. I think in his mind, when he says from the stand, and this goes back to my theory of there's truth in every lie, when he says from the stand, I would never intentionally hurt them, I would never hurt them. I think in his mind, he didn't hurt them. He performed an act of mercy. If Paul had lived, their entire lives would be destroyed. He probably would have gone to jail, to prison for a long period of time. He would have been a felon for the rest of his life. He would have been marked by that for the rest of his life. And the fact that he lived and the boat case continued would have destroyed everything else. He wouldn't have even been able to come home to a rich, wealthy, powerful family because the fact of the case would have destroyed that. So... Why do that? Why let him live and only to live a life of misery and self-blame for ruining everything for everybody else? And he would have known if Paul died, Maggie would never have been able to get over it, particularly if she knew that Alec did it. And 
Alec would still have the money problems bearing down on him because Maggie would still control these properties. I think in his mind, he had to kill them both. He had to kill them both. It was the, it was the humane thing to do. And coincidentally, it's the best thing for him. And Alice has said this before, that Alec is always number one. And I think even now, even if in his mind he's justifying it as he's somehow doing a good deed for Paul and Maggie, it's really all about him. And it almost worked. The defense and its apologists out there have said that Alec wouldn't kill his family to buy him a couple weeks. And that's true. I don't think he would have done that. But that's not what happened. In fact, it wasn't until September that scrutiny over his finances resurfaced. So that discovery thing went away. You didn't have to worry about that anymore. I think that's so important, Brett. His plan worked. It really did. Had he not been so greedy and been part of such a big Ponzi scheme, it may have worked and he may have quite literally gotten away with murder. If it, Yeah, you're 100% right. If it had only been $792,000, it would have worked. He would have made it. He would have made it out of this. And if Paul, if that video was in on Paul's phone, you know, if Bubba never gets that chicken, if, if those things don't happen, this would have worked. And it came so close to working. And he really, he only got in trouble because like you said, he stole so much money and this paralegal finds a check in September. The coincidences that came together for that not to work are really kind of interesting. And it really wasn't the $792,000 that got him. He, he pushed that off. That wasn't what got him. It was everything else that he'd done. And if that check hadn't been found, then Alec probably, you know, he testified that once Maggie was killed, he couldn't do anything with her estate until it cleared probate. And that's true. And we talked about this a little bit with Randolph and how his death would have put him in a bind because there's so many different people who are going to be involved in that. His brothers, his mom, who's still alive. It's going to be a really difficult thing to do. And so really his death is going to cut off a lot of money. And Alec, he uses this same excuse for Maggie. Same thing with Maggie. If she dies, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to access anything until it clears probate. And that's true to a certain extent that he wouldn't be able to access it until it cleared probate. But if Maggie's already cut him off, he's already in a bind there anyway, number one. And number two, he is the sole beneficiary of her will. It's not like his dad, where a whole bunch of people are going to be coming into this. And who was the executor of Maggie's estate? John Marvin Murdoch, his brother, who probably isn't going to give him a lot of grief when it comes to executing this estate. He is going to have to wait until it clears probate, and that is going to take some time. But guess what you can do when inheritance is clear and it's obvious you're going to get it and it's just a matter of time and it's just got to clear probate and delays, you know, bureaucracy is so terrible. You can take out a probate loan. You can take out probate loans against the property. Banks will give you money. And he had the perfect bank lined up. Palmetto State Bank. I'm sure they would have been happy to issue the money to him just as they had before. It was so close to working, but it didn't work and he didn't get away with it. And that meant another sacrifice was necessary and this is my view on this. People disagree with me on this. But I think by September, when he'd been fired by his law firm, he really was in a position where he wanted to at least leave something for Buster. I think he had this, this weird thing going on in his head, like Alice talked about, with the legacy and everything else. And he wanted to continue the legacy. And 
Paul had to be sacrificed, but Buster maybe can be saved. And remember who Buster was, right? I mean, Buster has not panned out, but he was kind of always bred in a lot of ways to be the heir to the the Murdaugh legal dynasty, right? He was supposed to go to law school, he ended up getting kicked out, but he was supposed to basically go in the family footsteps, whether it be in the assistant solicitor volunteer position or certainly join the family law firm. But he was going to be the legacy that Alec could leave behind. Paul kept getting into trouble, like like the boat case, right? He was never going to be who Alec saw his family name going through. Like Buster was a screw up, but in the same way that I think Alec was probably a screw up. I think Alec was probably a little bit of the black sheep of the family. And yeah, Buster had gotten kicked out of law school, but that would have worked out eventually. Money can cure all those problems. And Buster would have gone on to be a lawyer and he could have carried on that legacy, particularly if he has, you know, $15 million or whatever his life insurance policy was, if he gets shot and killed on the side of the road. And I think Alec thought a couple things. Number one, if he shot and killed on the side of the road, there would always be people who believed this was a tragedy for him. You know, he would be remembered as somebody who lost his wife and son and then the killers came back and they got him too. And I think that's one reason even though you can look at this and the defense tried to paint this, as we said they should, as a unselfish action. Look look what he does when he loves his family. What Look at the extent he's willing to go to. He's willing to die to help Buster. That's something the defense said in his closing argument. But that's not it. This wasn't an unselfish action. It was always about him in the end. It was about that legacy it was about avoiding shame. It was about covering up what he did. And it was about never having to answer for his actions. And I'm glad it didn't work out for him. And I'm glad that at the end of the day, when the jury came back with their verdict in this case, after a very short deliberation, by the way, it was guilty. And the judge, as Alice said, who did such an excellent job throughout this trial, sentenced Alec Murdoch two consecutive life without parole sentences. And I think that is as close to justice as you could possibly get in this case. Absolutely, Brett. I mean, I think you've said it beautifully. And the last bit, I think we won't really ever know. I don't know if there really was insurance for Buster at the end. I don't know if that was what motivated him. I don't think so. I think you're exactly right. I think Alec displays the classic, you know, trappings of a narcissist and he needed to go down even if everything was going around him down in flames so much so that it would cause him to kill his own wife and son he was also not going to be the one to end his own life when it was all closing in on him he was not going to allow this to close in on him and for him to basically be remembered as the downfall of the Murdaugh dynasty he would rather end all of it why wouldn't he end his own life? He already ended his own family's life to try and save himself. And when it was unsavable, he might as well have cut it off at its knees so that there was some semblance of a, a tragedy of unanswered questions that no one could definitively say that he was this utter just screw up and and not be able to face the music. He'd rather have question marks around his life than to be held accountable for really probably an entire life of lies. So even if the insurance side of providing for Buster was a side like benefit, I don't think that's what drove him to do it. And I know we've talked about this case a lot, and I don't want to belabor the point, but it is striking to me that Paul 
solved his own murder. It's by accident, you know, Paul recording that video and Bubba, the dog, chasing that chicken, I think is the reason Alec Murdoch was convicted. Without that video, there was evidence, and I think I would have believed he did it, even without the video, based on all the circumstances and the circumstantial evidence. I don't know that he would have been convicted. I think without that video, he probably does get away with the murders, and had the financial thing in September not happened, he might have gotten away with the financial stuff as well. If he could have just made it a little bit longer till he could have gotten some money on those properties and backfilled his problems and settled the boat case for not a lot. As, as a matter of fact, the boat case, eventually my understanding was settled and the settlement was sale Moselle and split the money amongst the various injured parties. That probably would have been fine with him. If he could have kept Edisto, sold Moselle, settled the boat case, it now goes away. Then he's in a position where he's still a partner. People haven't figured out his financial issues. They can't really pin the murders on him. Yeah, he lives under a little bit of cloud, and there always would have been people who believed he did it, but probably could have made it. He, it, I, I just, I want people to realize it was close. I think that's exactly right, Brett. And how incredible that there were, we talked about a lot of coincidences today, right? The, the unbelievability of all these coincidences to buy the defense's theory that it was another shooter. It was someone other than Alec who killed his family. But also there were coincidences that were incredibly fortuitous in this case that caused justice to be served in the end. The fact that they were able to break into the Paul's phone and find that video in time for trial and that that dog, Bubba, barked at just the time, the 50 seconds that Paul happened to be filming another dog's tail that made Alex speak out loud. Otherwise, we may never know that he'd been there within minutes of the murder. If not for these things, I agree with you. It is such a difficult thing to believe that a man of his power and stature would be able to kill his own family. But with this kind of just overwhelming evidence it was undeniable, and that's why the jury was out for about three hours. And they weren't even out for three hours. They probably deliberated for closer to an hour and a half or two hours at most and got their things together, told the judge. The judge gave the lawyers time to come back to the courthouse in order to deliver the verdict. That is an incredibly swift period to deliberate for a six-week-long trial. We've said this before, but typically if you have a quick deliberation period, it it bodes well for the prosecution, and it did so in this case. And I think it is the absolute right result. And what was, I think, shocking for a lot of people, because Alec has been sitting there for six weeks, dressed really like a lawyer, right? He's been clean cut. He has been in suit coats, and he has looked like a lawyer. But as soon as the guilty verdicts were read for all four counts, he stood up and handcuffs were slapped on him and he immediately walked out of the courtroom as a criminal because you are innocent until proven guilty and he was no longer assumed innocent he was found by the people by his peers the very peers that his family had lorded over for a century had found him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and i take no joy in that whatsoever, because this is tragedy upon tragedy for the entire community and for Paul and Maggie and for the entire Murdoch family and for the entire extended family of everyone affected. So I take no joy in those guilty verdicts, except 
I do think justice was served in a time when it feels like the justice system sometimes fails us. I don't think it failed here. I think there were vigorous advocates on both sides and the jury system worked as it should. I think that's an excellent last word on the Murdoch case. I don't anticipate we'll be doing much more on this. There will be an appeal. Obviously, it will almost certainly fail. We'll follow up on that. There's obviously a few mysteries around the family that some people are still interested in. We know that SLED is looking into the Stephen Smith death and has indicated that evidence they uncovered during this investigation is relevant to that investigation. If anything comes of that, we will obviously do a follow-up. That young man was murdered and he deserves justice, and, and this may be the only chance he has to get it. Don't know that if it'll end up being related to the Murdaws, but either way, if they figure out what happened, we'll do a follow-up. But I think 10 episodes, a couple lives, a couple... Legal Briefs episodes was probably enough for for Alec Murdoch. Well, we've given you all we got on this. And <laughs> literally, Brett, we so we had a bet going whether the my baby would come first or the verdict would come first. Well, the verdict came first, but thankfully we have finished the entire series before baby comes in probably about twenty four hours. So you guys will hear about it hopefully weeks ago by the time this episode finally drops. But this has been truly, we've said this before, the trial of the century. It has been such an interesting case to dive into factually and legally. And it's been a a real pleasure walking through it with you too, Brett. Yes, Alice, always. I love talking about these cases with you. And I'm going to miss you. Obviously, Alice will be taking a little time off. After she, Are you she let delivers me? her bundle of joy, <laughs> I'm gonna let you. You know, we have a at least three days for our maternity <laughs> policy here at the prosecutors. So we're gonna we're gonna do that. And and fortunately, the Alec Murdoch case took ten episodes. And it, as I speak here, we've only released two of them. So I think Ooh, you should have goodness. plenty of time. <laughs> thank goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we um. So we've got ten. Just those of you who are listening, we got ten of these episodes, and we've already recorded, I think, three other episodes. So. We we really did. Alice really gave her all right here at the end of her pregnancy to make sure that we didn't leave you guys hanging. And thank you, Alice, for your dedication. And I'm glad we made it. I'm glad we made it on this. I wasn't sure that we would, but but we did. Well, guys, we want to hear what you have to say. You have not been shy with your opinions on the Murdoch case. I know many of you are so glad that this is over and that we'll be on to something new next week. But if you have thoughts, shoot us an email prosecutorspod at gmail.com at prosecutorspod for all your social media a lot of those of you listening early and ad free on patreon or watching this on youtube we are well i guess even when this is released we're still about five months away from crime con but i hope you will come see us in crime con if you're going to be in orlando you can use code prosecutors for 10 percent off if you haven't signed up yet i hope you will we love seeing you guys and we're really looking forward to it. Well, Alice, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners before we sign off and you you go off to have a new baby and, and a miracle of life is about to happen? I don't know if this bodes well for my new baby that I've just spent like 
a significant part of this pregnancy talking about the Murdoch case <laughs> and the tragedy <laughs> of these murders. So I hope it's not like a, fore, well, a forewarning of what's you know, to come. <laughs> one day we'll just have to tell little Alec all about it. And, and <laughs> the baby's name is where not Alec, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for, for following along with us. And we do have new episodes coming. And I I feel good leaving behind this series because, again, like I said, I think... Justice has been served here. Yes, absolutely. And that's a great way to end it. And so we will end it there. And we will be back next week, but not with the Murdoch trial. Congratulations <laughs> to all of you. We are done. But until then, I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the prosecutors. really is what? A race against time. <laughs> Isn't it a race against time? It is a race against time. That, yes. And we're going to win. We're going to win. You, we unless are, unless you it. go into labor that, in the middle of this episode. That's why I feel like every minute counts. I'm like, if we waited till tonight, who knows? Like, Who knows? Who literally, knows? who knows? So like, what, I'm with you. If I'm available here, let's just do it. <laughs> I didn't think that we'd be do able to do it. Yeah, I didn't either. But we made it. Well, I kind of wondered as if, you know, we finish, you're going to be like, my water just broke. <laughs> or better yet, my water broke 45 minutes ago. <laughs>
See what's screaming all month long during Pluto TV's April Ghouls. Watch hauntingly good movies like Evil Dead and Cloverfield, or terrifying shows like The Walking Dead and Nosferatu. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows. Available on live and on demand. Download the free Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never.